really believe that we've got an opportunity at the moment where house prices are uh, skyrocketing and there's a real lack of affordable housing. Uh, this is a really great opportunity to not only contribute to uh, the solution, but also to make money as well. So I think it's all really important. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're joined by the CEO and founder of High Impact Property Investments, Dr. Dion Payne. She'll share the stories of how she went from partying in university into getting her PhD in sugarcane chemistry, learn about how she got involved in property development and her passion behind sustainability. Dr. Payne has a passion in investing in a sustainable fashion. After doing this herself, she now helps others to do the same. I am the CEO and founder of a company called High Impact Property Investments and we specialise in partnering investors that are looking for double digit returns with projects that provide affordable and sustainable homes. I am going to brag, I'm going to tell you about my book. Um, I've written a book called Ethical Property Investing um, and that's really about my journey into creating affordable homes as a developer and now supporting other developers that are creating affordable and sustainable homes. How does Dr. Payne go about reaching this goal of sustainable housing in her everyday life? I'll show you my typical day and then I'll show with you the best days. Uh, so my, my typical day goes like this. Um, you know, I'll have, uh, I'll, I'll get up fairly early in the morning because I, I tend to do exercise and meditation and all of that. And then I'll have a meeting with somebody in the US um, because I'm expanding my business over there. Um, I'll do the mum thing and, and, you know, sort of pack my kids off to school and, and shout at them to make sure that they've got their clothes on and they've brushed their teeth and they've taken their lunch and they get out the door. Um, and then I try and get some work done uh, between nine till one where it's just me focus time. I've got a team, so I, I always like to make sure that I delegate tasks to them as well. Um, and then in the afternoon, I will have meetings um, and um, that, is, that is actually a typical day and my ideal day. Sometimes, sometimes what happens is that in the morning um, I, I sort of try and slide an extra meeting in or I, I have a few too many meetings so then I get frustrated that I haven't got the work done that I need to get done. Um, but generally, the more I'm talking to people, the happier I am, the more I'm sharing ideas, the happier I am. If it's over tea and cake as well, <laughs> even better. Dr. Payne has built a lot of success in Australia. But that is not where her story began. I grew up in a sort of small suburban area of the UK. Um, it's nine miles away from Birmingham. Yeah, about nine miles. Yeah, it's actually equidistant. Nine miles away from Birmingham and uh, Wolverhampton. So we're slap bang in the middle of that. Um, the, the area is called the West Midlands and the location that I'm from is called Tiverdale. It was really interesting. It was, it was cool. Um, it was fairly quiet. Um, but you know, I don't know, it always felt a little bit too small for me. Like there was a big wide world outside of that, that, uh, really needed to be explored. And I remember, oh, we had the most amazing public transport system. And so you could get on the bus and, you know, oh, I don't even know how much it would cost 
sort of comparison in Australia, but it was it was a very low amount of money, maybe like it was five pounds, so maybe ten dollars or something like that in today's money. And um, so you could go from the south of the West Midlands all the way to the north of the West Midlands in, in that sort of shire, you'd call it. And um, so you could go really far. So you could go from Cannock, which was above north of Wolverhampton, um, down to as far as almost Stratford-upon-Avon, um, which is, you know, so it's still in the Midlands, but, you know, sort of a bit further down. Um, so you could get, and you could get on any train, any bus in that area. So we just me and my friends from school used to just go and explore. We'd go to Birmingham, we'd hang out in Birmingham, we could go to the airport. Um, I don't know why we wanted to go to the airport. There were some cool shops there, but <laughs> it wasn't like we were traveling anywhere at that point. Um, but, you know, we could we could travel there, we could travel to Stoke-on-Trent. And it was just, yeah, I, I've always just had that the world is my oyster kind of feel that, you know, just, just because I was in one location didn't mean that I couldn't travel and see other places. And the interesting thing about the UK as well is that even in a very short, um, short sort of area, small area, um, the dialects are different, the accents are different, the way people are is quite different. So a great, great way of um, people spotting, actually. I, I really enjoyed that, yeah. Dr. Payne's parents rarely joined her on these trips, but they still managed to have eyes on her. It was pre-mobile phone days. Um, but but you used to have the, um, the public telephones, pay phones, yeah. So if I ever needed to get a hold of my parents, I just and you could do reverse charges in those days as well. So that's it. If I ever got into trouble, not that I did, I was a pretty good kid, but I just knew that that was that was an option. And also, um, like my, my heritage is West Indian, so um, there was quite a big West Indian migration to the UK, particularly around the Midlands and London and that sort of thing. But it just seemed that you know. I, I couldn't escape, I, I couldn't really escape, um, you know, sort of family members or friends uh, that my parents would know. So there was this, you know, sort of extended network of um, sort of semi-relatives where, you know, I, I couldn't really get into that much trouble because I knew that there were always eyes on me, which at the time I kind of hated because it was like, oh, you know, I want to get a bit naughty. Um, but uh, now I really appreciate it because knowing that there was that community that was there to hold me in whatever happened was actually it, it felt good. It felt really good. While growing up, Dr. Payne attended her local schools. I went to a local primary school, which was literally just up the road from where I lived. I could walk there in five minutes. I went to a secondary school, which was about um, about a kilometre and a half away. Um, and, and so I was there until I was 16. And then when I finished there, I went to uh, a sixth form college, as we called it then, um, and so that was when I was 17, 18, before I went off to university. And that was in Wolverhampton. So that was nine miles away. It was probably the first time that I, you know, did public transport to get to school because, um, you know, it was, it was a significant distance and there was lots of traffic and, and that sort of thing. But I, I really enjoyed it. It was nice to do something different. Um, the secondary school that I went to was probably a bit more... Um, you know, I just went. I just went to a regular secondary school, whereas the the sixth form college was just a bit more. Um, I'm going to say upmarket. Very like had amazing results, and um, which is one of my aunties told me that I should go. And I, I love my auntie face, so I, I went and I, I went and had a look at it and really liked it. 
Um, but yeah, it was much more structured and much more focused on results and getting good results. And and so, yeah, as a result, I probably did a lot better than I would have done if I'd have stayed at my local comprehensive school. Dr. Payne had wonderful experiences throughout her time at school. And although there's a lot to choose from, there is one memory that she will never forget. I don't know why this memory sticks in my head, but uh, one of the one of the favourite times of the year for me in the UK is autumn because it's one of the times of the year the leaves are falling off the trees and you know it's that sort of back to school time and it's just you know it's getting a little bit cooler but it's still a little bit sunny and anyway <clears throat> myself and my friend Robert Grimes I think we'd actually skipped school uh, to go to the, the sort of town centre and we were on our way back and there was this big pile of leaves that was there you know that had fallen off the trees and lovely autumn colours anyway I was just about to go and jump in it um, and he pushed me out of the way and he jumped in it. <laughs> he, there, was a, there was a big dog pat underneath the leaves, which he stepped in. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Every time I think of him, I just... <laughs> every once in a while he'll be, you know, because we're Facebook friends, every once in a while they'll come up on my Facebook feed and I just have this big chuckle. It's like, oh, my friend Robert Grimes. <laughs> And it's funny, it's like one of the most silliest stories, you know, as, you know, with kids, it's kids, it's always like, you know, poo and bum jokes. Uh, I'm, I'm a 44 year old woman and I still laugh at that. So <laughs> some of those things never leave you. After completing school, Dr. Payne went off to university with a specific goal in mind. I had a specific course in mind. I wanted to be a, well, initially I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I knew that I'm, sort of by the time I went to sixth form, I knew that I wasn't going to be a doctor. I hadn't studied hard enough. Um, and so I sort of lowered my sights a little bit and wanted to do pharmacy. But again, it was that sort of that age where I was, I was going to school and I wanted to get good grades, but I'd also started partying. And so, you know, I had competing priorities. So by the time I left sixth form, my grades were okay, but they weren't crash hot really. And um, so I went to the University of Portsmouth to do a degree which was half pharmacy and half chemistry, because uh, I did quite well at chemistry at school. Um, and uh, the plan was that at the end of the year, if my grades were good enough, it was the top 10%, then I could move into the pharmacy degree. Um, now, I think there were like 20 students in my cohort, so that meant being the you know one of the top two. Um, that came to me a little bit later. By the time I did my master's, I was much more diligent. Um, but really, the partying just took over. <laughs> so I wasn't in the top two. Um, and so I didn't do pharmacy, which I actually really appreciate because um, that would have been a completely different trajectory all over again. But, you know, pharmaceutical chemistry, I absolutely loved it. I loved I loved the study of it. I, I did a placement year in year three so it was a four-year degree so year three I did a placement year and I worked in the agrochemical industry um the company was called uh cyanamid uh, which then merged and, and became BASF and um you know it was it was just it was the application of what I'd been learning that made it all made sense up until that point I was kind of just going through the motions and learning and staying up late and revising and in between partying um, but the actual application of it and, and being in a lab and working with people and understanding the different projects and, and what was required, it was so cool. It was so cool. I really loved it. Um, 
now there's no way I would work in an agrochemical industry, but at the time it was such great experience. And then when I went back for year four, um, I, I just, because I had that understanding and that hands-on experience, I got a much better grade than I would have done if I hadn't have done that work experience here. Although she did not achieve the perfect balance, Dr. Payne believes in having a well-rounded experience while studying and working. It's something that I'm sort of grappling with. Uh, well, I'm not grappling with it anymore. It's something I have been grappling with um, recently, just in terms of what I want for my kids, and and you know, I want them to be you know challenged. I want them to love learning, but I also want them to be well-rounded people as well. So for me, it's not all about the academics or you know the academic prowess of a, a particular school. Because I know, I, you know, being in academia as well, I, I know how all of that can be fudged. For me, what's more important is that obviously, you know, there's a there's a certain level of intelligence. Um, they they, but there's there's the sort of head intelligence, but also the emotional intelligence. Because there's so much that's happening in the world right now. Um, I think if you're too much in your head, you're not going to be able to solve the big problems. That, I th actually, I think the big problems have been created because a lot of people have been too much in their heads and not so much in their hearts. So for me, it's really important to make sure that there is that balance um, between head and heart so that, yes, we can have like really creative solutions to problems, but there's also the, you know, how is this going to impact my fellow human citizen? Yeah. After finishing her placement, Dr. Payne finished the fourth year of her degree. From there, she joined the workforce. I went to work in the pharmaceutical industry um, and that was fun, but I was working for a large pharmaceutical company and I realised that I didn't enjoy being the small cog in the big machine. Um, and, and my department was great. I, I really loved the team that I worked with, um, but it, it really was that. It just felt really impersonal. And I remember one Christmas time where there was a big address on a, on a screen and I just, I don't know, it just felt really impersonal and I didn't feel, didn't feel very valued because it, because I couldn't be very valued because there were so many other, you know, employees as well. So I just wanted a more intimate experience and to know who, you know, sort of my boss was, you know. So I went and um, uh, I'm just thinking that I, I think I lived in Jersey for a little while after that because I also met my husband at university. He was from um, Jersey, which is a small island off the south coast of the UK. And so we went and, and lived there together for a while, had an amazing time, but I still felt that hankering for getting back into science, getting to use my skills again. So I left Jersey and went to do a master's and then we both decided that we would um, come away. So we went to New Zealand, first of all. I really liked being in Auckland, but um, we had an experience where we came to see a friend. So we'd moved to New Zealand, shipped all of our stuff over. It hadn't arrived yet, but uh, we went to uh, Australia, stayed with a friend in Brisbane who had been a friend at uni. And um, he just, you know, his friends instantly became our friends. They were beautiful. We went down to Byron Bay. My husband realised that he could study at Byron Bay um, at the School of Audio Engineering. Um, and, and that was really significant for him. I realised that I could study in Australia and um, be sponsored to do a PhD. Um, and that PhD was in sugarcane chemistry, which by that point I'd sort of, you know, done the agrochemical industry, I'd done the pharmaceutical industry, and then I was more into natural products chemistry. So um, I could do a PhD that aligned with my values around sustainability and, and health and all of that. And um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was so much fun. 
Dr. Payne moved to Australia when she was around 25 years old to do her PhD. So that I completed that. That gave us enough points to stay in Australia. The one thing about the PhD, though, was that during the time I was there, I could see all of the colleagues and the the professionals that were around me that had years and years of research experience. And what I thought was a very stable position turned out not to be. It turned out to be lots of short-term com- contracts and very competitive to get grants. And there's a there's a saying in the academic community, publish or perish. And it's very, it, oh, it, to me, it just felt really icky. For, for some people, they love it. For me, I didn't like it. So I decided that, um, you know, I was at the age then, I was in my early 30s, I was going to have children instead and then figure out later what I was going to do. So that's what I did. And then, you know, Atticus and Malia came along. A PhD in sugarcane chemistry is not something they hear about every day. Let's hear what it entails. Really, really, really funny how this happened. So the the uh, Cooperative Research Centre for Sugar, uh, so a big research organisation, money from the government, money from industry as well. And the whole point was to increase the value of sugarcane so normally you know sugarcane is harvested it's pressed the sugar gets taken away you know you have molasses for animal feed and that's about it but the idea was to increase the value of sugarcane through using the waste materials for for more things so with the with the bagasse which is the sugarcane that's left over that can be burnt and it's 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 seen as renewable resource there was also talk about biofuels as well uh, my research was actually looking at sugarcane as a source of medicines for diabetes, which sounds really counterintuitive until you recognise that when you strip um, when you strip a plant and and just basically focus on one aspect of the plant and discard everything else, then it it makes it makes things out of balance. If if you consider that sugarcane has compounds in there that not only uh, reduce the um, insulin spikes. So, you know, preventing diabetes um, also contains compounds that inhibit the bacteria um, that cause tooth decay and lots of other things like that as well. So you strip that away, um, you, you're left with the sugar, which is quite damaging, um, but not without the other things that balance it out. So that was the that was the conclusion that I had in my research. If we didn't refine sugarcane in the first place, maybe we wouldn't have diabetes. Um, but in the process of that research as well. I did manage to find a couple of compounds that hadn't been found before um, and also some compounds that did have that medicinal effect against uh, the enzymes that are that are implicated in the diabetes disease. So that was really cool. I, I, um, as part of the research team, we got some patents um, that you know, were taken out over those compounds. And then the, the job of the CRC was to actually sell that to pharmaceutical industry, which then would have, you know, sort of meant money trickling down. Unfortunately, nothing came of it. You know, if you sort of search on search me on the internet and look for, you know, compounds from sugarcane, you'll find my name come up, but we never managed to commercialise it. Coming up after the break, we hear how Dr. Dion Payne got started in property. It was at the time that I had kids um, and I wanted to be home for my kids. She shares the lessons that she learned while developing properties. I had so many learning experiences from that project. We'll learn about one of the aha moments. But I think that there's a there's a myth that you can't you can't create affordable and sustainable homes and make money. And that's next. I'm Taran Sham and you're listening to Property Investory.
Hey there. Over the years, I've built up a portfolio of properties and it's been great to see capital growth. But the challenge I face is the passive income has been quite poor, providing a net return of 3 to 4% per annum. I'd have to buy at least 10 properties or more to generate $100,000 per year. Now, if I had the cash to buy these outright, which I didn't, then I need the help of banks and as they wouldn't lend me more, I was stuck. This is when I start looking into alternative investments where I could use my equity and cash to generate 25 to 30% per annum returns and fast track my passive income goal. In a short space of two years, I've been able to achieve this goal and have tripled my passive income instead. Now, if you want to learn more on how I did this, SMS me your name and email address on 04-88-88-31-32 and I'll send you a free report explaining how I did it. We've explored Dr. Payne's personal journey. Now, let's explore her property journey and how it started. It was at the time that I had kids um, and I wanted to be home for my kids as well because you know, I, I just, I, after doing all of that research, I just loved the change from, you know, being being in my head to being more in my heart around my beautiful little um, munchkins. So I really enjoyed that. But the problem was, was that I wasn't working. So then we were on one income and we were trying to buy a property and we couldn't on one income because where I live um, just outside of Byron Bay, properties were already, um, you know, unaffordable on that one income. I mean, I look at it now, like we could have purchased something that was $400,000, which is now $1.5 million. You know, so it's, you know, affordable is is a shifting perspective, definitely. But I mean, you know, that, that was our thing. And so for us, it was about a need. It was how do we do property in a creative way so that we can get onto the property ladder. And um, so, you know, my husband, um, my husband and I did some courses, did some mentoring. We found a joint venture partner as a result of one of these courses. And, and that JB partner, he had money, but not the time to do developments. And we had the time, but not the money to go in and do that by ourselves. So that was our first partnership. We did a couple of uh, projects with him, made money. Um, and I just, you know, I was, I was blown away by the fact that I had that we had, so myself and my husband, that we had some agency over the direction of our life. It wasn't just that we were relying on a job, it was that we could actually create money for ourselves. And I could see that, you know, if we were able to scale this, and um, that we would do really well financially. So that was that was how we got into property in the first place. One of Dr. Payne's most memorable property moments was one of her first developments. You know, the story that I always tell is that I, I saw a piece of vacant land um, in Ocean Shores, which is opposite the shopping centre, I just kept walking past it, and you know it had a for sale sign. And I, you know, by that point, I'd done a few projects, and I, I it was bigger than what I thought. It was bigger than what I'd done, but I, you know, a bit naive. I was like, yeah, give that a go. <laughs> I did. I did the business case. I did the feasibility, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that all works. And so, bought joint venture partners in uh, to help with that and um, to help fund that. Um, and then, you know, went along our merry way to get them built. And what I initially, I was just in it for the money, really. I just thought, you know, we're going to make a mozza. Like we, we were going to make a mozza. It was going to be awesome. Um, and, um, 
you know, a few things happened. One, my very, like I, I just put a post on Facebook because, you know, part of the due diligence process was do people actually want these 60 square meter one bedroom townhouses? So I did a, a small campaign with the local real estate agent um, and put something on Facebook just saying, look, I'm, I'm looking into this. I think that it could be good. Anybody interested? And um, the first person that replied said, this looks amazing. I want to be part of that. How can we make it work? So we had a meeting and I was, I was really honest. I was like, well, I've never done anything like this before. But, you know, if you're willing to come on the journey with me, then great. For the joint venture partner, it was her first time being involved in property development, but Dr. Payne still had trust in her. As well for her, her dad had passed away, she had a small amount of deposit and for her it was like I've never bought a house before but you know, like I'm, I'm really interested in doing this. And I think it was the, um, you know, she was a, a partner in a dance troupe that I was part of at the time so you know, we'd had quite a few experiences and you know, some, some crazy wild nights of you know, partying and, and dancing and things like that so we, you know, we were friends um, in that sense but you know, that level of trust from her, um, you know, was part of the driving factor of when things weren't as easy as I thought they were going to be. It was like, okay, I've got to keep going because I don't want to let my friend down. And, and then, you know, it wasn't just one friend, it was other members of the community because by that point I realised, well, you know, if she was saying, well, I wouldn't be able to stay in the community and, and you know, be able to afford renting long term um, if something like this didn't exist. So as an example, the average price of those townhouses was 350000 um, and the median house price in the area was 650000 So it was a really significant, um, you know, really significant stepping stone for somebody to, to give them that level of security and, and affordability. Now, three of those homes were managed by a community housing provider as well, um, and they were, the community housing provider had the head lease over the property. So, they were able to rent them at 80% of the market rent. And I remember with my joint venture partner just going, partners, because there were three of us all together, and just going, how are we going to sell these to investors if they're only getting 80% of the market rent? Uh, but we did a case study. So my, my, one of my joint venture partners was an accountant. She did a whole spreadsheet on, well, you know, if the, if the um, community housing provider is taking on the head lease and there's no vacancy rates, um, and there's no repairs to be done. And uh, there were a, a whole load of other things that we could put numbers to. So when the spreadsheet spat out this number, it was like, well, for anybody that's investing in this, they'd be mad to not invest in this one because they've got all that security from the community housing provider and the return that they're going to get is pretty close to the return that they would get if they sold one of the regular units. So once we got our heads around that, we were then able to sell them and they all sold like hotcakes. And I recognised that we could actually sell them, sell that development many times over. Um, it, it was just a shame that we didn't have the stock. Although I have to say that <laughs> that project was really, really, really stressful. If we'd have had more stock, <laughs> it would have been a disaster. From this project, Dr. Payne had multiple learning experiences. Uh, one of them was that the builder went broke. Um, I'd chosen the wrong builder. I, I, there, were t there were three builders. One of them kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And the other two, I chose the one that I chose. There was not much in, in them, except that this one um, that I did choose didn't have as much experience as the other one. 
but he was really dynamic, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I could see that we could be friends. So I kind of went for the friend option rather than the steady, stable, reliable builder who is still building, whereas the other builder is not. <laughs> so that was a really good lesson. <laughs> Great salesman. But yeah, I mean, look, he did, he did um, overpromise and, and unfortunately underdelivered. The other thing about that development was that just in that process of the joint venture partners, I, um, I, I really got blindsided by, you know, we can make money from this. And, and there were certain things that were red flags, but I just let them slide because I was like, we're not going to be in this project for very long. We can get over this. We're going to be fine. Um, and, you know, those little irritating things then became these really big sort of things that blew up out of, out of proportion. But if I'd, if I'd have tackled them head on in the first place, it probably wouldn't have been an issue. So, again, that was a lesson for me too. It's like, you know, number one, uh, work with people that are, you know, that have aligned values um, and, and be courageous enough to call something out if it's not working right from the get-go. I mean, the, the, the relationship between the builder and the joint venture partner as well was not good. And, and, you know, even before we signed contracts, it was bad. And I was trying to sort of just, you know, chivvy it long ago. It'll, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. And it wasn't. So, um, yeah, so big, big, big learnings around that. But, you know, from those learning experiences, it, it was valuable because I then got to see, well, if I want to continue doing property development, because that very nearly took me out of the game. But if I want to continue doing property development, I've got to do it in a way where it works for everybody. Um, one of the challenges that we faced was that the JV partner, one of them, um, you know, really wanted to push things down on price. Um, and I, I didn't really like that but because it was to my benefit. I didn't, I just let it slide. Uh, whereas now I just see that if it's not a win-win, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. So there's no point. So um, yeah, it, it just means that sort of moving forward, it was a great testing ground. Great, great, great testing ground. So many lessons. But moving forwards, it has to be the the win for the investor, the win for the developer, the win for the builder, the win for all the contractors, and the win for the end user as well. If it's not, there's no point in doing it because it's going to come back and bite you in the ass. When she took on this project, it already had approved DA, which influenced the type of build. You know, I remember in like right at the beginning of the project, just thinking, okay, can we do anything with these townhouses? Can we add an extra room? There were some real challenges as well in the um, getting the valuation. So because there wasn't any comparable stock, the, the only stock that was, you know, one bedroom townhouses was 30 years old and in really rubbish condition. So getting a valuer to come and value it, like it, it just, yeah, they, they actually, the value actually came back and said, you know, based on the cost and based on our report, this land is worth $70,000, uh, whereas, you know, we'd got a contract on it for seven nine nine, And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. And it was just, you know, for them, it was because they couldn't see the potential. But, you know, that's that's valuers. Valuers don't necessarily see that. They they just have to work by the numbers and the framework that they're given. Uh, they're not, you know, sort of entrepreneurial in that sense. Um, but, um, yeah, so, that, I mean, that, that was challenging, just trying to get the, the finance sorted initially um, and so you know in that process as well we really investigated well what if we did a different design what if we made it two bedrooms instead of one um, and all of those sorts of things but it came down to this is the 
the highest and best use for the site and we just had to get on with it but you know also part of it was you know just doing our due diligence and like I said before making sure that there was a market for it and and that became really apparent like we we had a we had about three sales initially uh, which meant that we could start the project and and you know start with a a stage of uh, four of the units so break it down into stages um and then the construction started in the September October and by Christmas they had all sold Uh, so that again for me was just proving the market demand which was cool. This project allowed for her to find what she was good at. I wouldn't say carved my niche only because I never then went ahead and replicated that on my own steam as a developer. I always really wanted to, um, but I, I found a different track after which I'll talk about later. Um, but that your point about the one and two bedroom, you know, sort of one and two bedroom homes, it's not traditionally been the way that we've been building. We've been building the three and the four bedroom, you know, sort of mega mansions. But it's actually the way that we are moving towards because family sizes are getting smaller. They are, and and people are, you know, sort of looking to live on their own. I'm trying to think of the statistics, I, and I, it's been a while since I've looked at them, but you know, there, there are certainly more and more people that are looking to live in one and two bedroom homes and and have that smaller space. So, um, you know, for example, older older people where, you know, families have moved away, they're stuck in their three bedroom large homes because they can't find anything, like they want to downsize, but they can't find anything to downsize to, which then locks up those three bedroom homes for, you know, takes them out of the market for families that are looking for something as well. So, it's it yeah it's challenging. I th- there's definitely more of a move towards those one or two and and smaller space living as well, which is why I believe that co living is taking off because um, it's a more affordable way to live, which then means for younger people it provides a more affordable rental for them so that they can save up uh, their money to be able to help them to thrive and whether that's to save the deposit for their own home or which is getting more challenging in these days, um, or whether it's to you know do investments and so that you know they can grow their wealth without having to pay eighty percent of their income on rent, which is what I know people in this area are having to do because of the housing crisis. So um, yeah, yeah, smaller homes is is a good thing. From recent events, Dr. Payne has observed the value of smaller homes. We've got the the government saying, okay, well people can take money out of their super. Uh, for their home deposit. I mean, we we did this during COVID. Uh, the government did this during COVID, and all that happened was that the the prices went up because uh, demand went up and the supply. Um, you know, there was there was more demand than there was supply. So in in a very you know very recent history, we're seeing that this you know making it more possible for people to buy homes isn't working. So I think, I mean, you know, there's, there's part of me that thinks, oh, God, this is really bad. And, you know, what can we do to, to you know, but obviously, you know, if, if you've got a bad, broken business model, that's not going to work. But I, I sort of look at it and go, okay, well, in this, there's opportunities. And I think one of the opportunities is actually to build smaller, use less resources, use space more wisely um, and, and create 
more affordable homes as a result of doing that. And also, I wonder, and I, I'm not, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm an ex-developer. Um, I'm not a builder. I'm not, I wasn't particularly good at the construction aspect of it, which is why I, I relied on my team members for that. Um, but I just, I, I wonder if there's an opportunity to build more simply as well. But even in that opportunity to build, build more simply, do people actually want that or do they want the fancy pants homes with the fancy pants kitchens and, and all of that? So I don't know what the answer is, but I suspect that there is definitely an opportunity here and I'm really interested in the conversations to explore what that opportunity is. What I can say, though, is that the need for affordable housing, uh, the need for co-living, the need for you know these smaller dwelling places, that need isn't going away. Uh, so we do have a really good opportunity for that. And and certainly, you know, as investors, uh, investing into projects that are giving double-digit returns, that's a win. Uh, for the developers that are creating these, um, these developments, and as long as they're being innovative and creative and using space as well as they can, then, you know, they can win too. And then the end users can win as well because they actually get homes that suit the way that they want to live. So rather than having lots and lots of dead space and having to heat and cool it and having these really badly insulated properties that are costing an arm and a leg to heat and cool because of rising energy prices, maybe this is the opportunity to just bring it all in and, and um, you know, sort of be able to do more with less. Maybe this is the lesson in all of this. This project was also when Dr. Paint had an aha realization. I think that the really key thing for me was in that particular development was, um, and I've, I've alluded to this all the way through the conversation, but as an investor, I was able to make double digit returns on the money that I put into the project. Um, and I was able to do something that was really spectacular for the community and really helped out the community albeit on a small scale, and I would have loved to have done more under my own steam. Um, but I think that there's a, there's a myth that you can't, you can't create affordable and sustainable homes and make money. If you're going to do that, then you know, you're basically relying on charity. Well, the, the opposite is absolutely true. The, the opposite of that is the truth. The, the opposite of that is you can, um, you can provide affordable and sustainable homes you can do it in a way that um, that benefits the communities around you and you can make money doing that as well. And I think that that myth is actually robbing us of the opportunity to create more affordable and sustainable homes and to do that in a way that helps people and planet to thrive. Because if you've got the, if you've got the impression that if I put my money into this affordable housing project that I'm not going to get much, I'm not going to make much money. So therefore I'll put it into a traditional housing project where I'm going to get much more. And then more of that is going to be built. And then more of the inequality that we're seeing is going to be present. When talking about inequality, Dr. Payne does not just mean housing affordability. I'm talking about homes for people with disabilities. Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, young people with disabilities that are living in hospitals, which is absolutely not the right place for them, or, or even old people's homes, because they can't find um, uh, property that is accessible for them. That they've got full use of that, you know, that where they can move around. That's specifically designed to meet their needs. Um, so that that's an that's an opportunity where there is definitely money to be made in that um, and then you've got you know we talk about the climate crisis 
the construction industry and, and the way that we build our homes and maintain our homes is a really big contributor to um, to climate change. So if we can build in a way that where we're producing homes that are really energy efficient, where they produce more energy um, in, in the homes than they consume, then we've got like a decent chance of actually getting through what's happening in the world right now. Um, you know, I've, as somebody that lives in... Uh, the Byron Shire, we've been very heavily impacted by the recent rains and, and devastation by floods. Thankfully, where I live wasn't affected, um, not by the flooding anyway. I'm, I'm dealing with mould at the moment, so I'm <laughs> demoulding my house, and that, that's a bit boring, I have to say. Um, but I'm very grateful that I wasn't flood impacted, so I, w- I will definitely say that. But, you know, we're, I, I can see very clearly that we're dealing with the effects of climate change. Um, and, um, you know, the, there's a whole city of Lismore um, where you know, I think it's like 22,000 residents are um, basically living in mouldy, um, mud-covered houses. Um, the, the city centre itself is dead. There's no shops that are there. So, you know, I, I, I put a post on Facebook a little while ago saying, are we seeing our first climate refugees? I know people that have just packed up and gone, I can't stay here. I can't be here. They, you know, there was a flood in 2017, a flood this year as well, and you know, it was so much bigger than what it was before. It's happening. It's it's here. Like you know, we're sort of seeing we're at the effect of it, and so um, I think we've got a real opportunity rather than to shy away from it and go, oh God, it's all too hard. We've got a really good opportunity to make this work, and I think it's probably the last opportunity that we have. In a future episode of Property Investory, Dr. Dion Payne will share her property development strategy. I'm an ex-developer. <laughs> I'm very happy to say that. <laughs> uh, just in terms of my temperament, I'm I'm much I'm much better at the relationship side than the development and you know sort of the project management side. We'll hear about how she's on track to produce $1 billion for ethical property projects. Well, I was very, very, very systematic. We'll learn about the resources that she used at the start of her journey. I made the connection quite early on that property development and personal development go hand in hand. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show and you're a wholesale investor wanting to learn more about how I got started in alternative investments, where I've been able to use my equity and cash to generate 25 to 30% per annum returns to fast track my passive income goal, then SMS me your name and email address on 04-88-88-3132 to register your interest. Now, in a short space of two years, I've been able to achieve my goal and have tripled my passive income. To find out how, SMS me your name and email address on 04 88 88 31 32